don't know if you guys can hear, but it's windy. They look. Oh my god. So this episode's you know super light and fluffy. So yeah. Was that it? Was that, that your was, whole that clip? Was kind of my. You know, light and fluffy, like cotton candy, like with cotton razors candy. in it. I don't know if I would call this cotton candy in the first place. There's so much murder in this. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. There is so much murder. <laughs> Hi there, neighbors. Welcome back to The Next Town Over. I'm Carson Costa, and I'm here with my co-host, Nicole Bennett. Hello. Today we're talking about a couple neighbors who haven't seen eye to eye lately. Or ever. Yeah, or ever. To put it mildly. (laughs) So please buckle your seatbelts, stow your tray tables, and make sure your seats are in the upright position, because we're taking you to Eastern Europe to talk about Russia and Ukraine. That was such a cute intro. Thank you. There is... So much material here. A lot. There's a lot of material here. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, right I'm right now I'm just dawdling because I... Where do we begin? And, yeah. Like, oh, let's begin with the history of Ukraine. Do you guys have any idea how intense and long-standing this history is? Yeah. Also, something I noticed while I was researching this, because I wanted this to be very much the history of both things. I didn't want to like weigh one more than the other, mm-hmm. which is extremely difficult. Cause when you start diving into the history of this stuff, it's very Ukraine centered. And then I started looking into Russia, which has a very separate whole thing going on. There is so much. So um, it's all very detailed and lengthy. Yes. And like I said, there's lots of murder, a lot of murder. Then now, now, <laughs> We have actually pushed this episode back three weeks because I kept feeling like we hadn't done enough research on it. We hadn't had enough time for it. And honestly, I was thinking about pushing it back again, except I didn't have a backup plan at the ready this time. So I was like, this is it just we have to do it. I don't know if we'd ever be fully prepared for this. because There's so much. We're never going to be experts, but we have done quite quite a bit of research at this point and we're hoping to do it justice so bear with us we're not going to cover everything but we're going to have a discussion about the history and the overlap and uh, things they have in common things they do not and we're just going to try to get at understanding both of these places a little bit more uh so that a little better informed yeah yeah. Because they're neighbors, and that's not going away anytime soon. No. I They're kind of stuck together. They literally have been stuck together since Pangea. Yeah. So. Because I looked that up, too. <laughs> I looked up where they were. <laughs> where they were located on Pangea. And uh, they've been they've been stuck together since Pangea. Which is funny, because Ukraine actually was, like, on the coast. So it moved away from, like, it was away from everything else that it's next to now. But it was still stuck with Russia. <laughs> it's like... Oh, man. Since the dawn of time, these two have been neighbors. <laughs> yeah, this is the dinosaurs yeah. that populated these places. We're probably fighting over who got to live in Kiev. <laughs> everybody wants to live in Kiev. I hear it's lovely this time of year. Also, Kiev, Kiev. I, it, my understanding is that the difference is Russian versus Ukrainian. I cannot keep straight which one is which. Yeah. Because, um, so I guess I'm, I'm going to dive into language, actually, oh instead of starting with the history, because... What a natural segue. 
Well, the reason that the Kiev is spelt differently and pronounced slightly differently in Russian Ukrainian is because Russian has four letters that Ukraine does not, and Ukrainian has four letters that Russian does not. And they have certain letters that represent different sounds in each language, too. Even though they have the same letter, they represent different sounds. Mm-hmm. So the I... And I think it's I think Russian is K I E V, and the I in Russian is like the Y in Ukrainian, and then the E is like the Y, and so that's how the you get the or no, the E is Kiev. the I yeah, yeah so that's how you get the key versus Kiev huh yeah. and yet people say that they're basically the same then uh, they are both Slavonic Woo-hoo. languages. Which also includes Polish, Czech, and Bulgarian. Which, you know, are all exactly the same, as we all know. So the same. So the same. Right. Yeah. Very much the same. Ukrainian, uh, one of the reasons that it, it differs from Russian. I mean, there's there's a lot of different influences and aspects that go into this. But one of the big parts was that large part of Ukraine was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which we will get into later, for 222 years, which, for context, the United States is going to be 247 this July. So that's almost as long as we've been a country. They were part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So naturally, they absorbed some Polish influences into their language. Makes sense. It's kind of hard not to. Kind of hard not to. Ukrainian and Russian share between 55 to 62% of their vocab, depending on the estimate that you use and the process that you're using, 62% is often cited by professionals. So that seems to be the kind of agreed upon amount, which sounds like a lot until you consider that using the same measures, it's the same percentage of shared vocab for English and Dutch. So if you think you can understand Dutch just because you speak English... You would be wrong. <laughs> the idea that they're the same language is ridiculous. It is. Which is Indeed. why they, you know, say that you are Russian-speaking, you know, it, like Zelensky is a Russian speaker. Mm-hmm. Because it is different and separate from Ukrainian. Yeah. So much so that they have to identify anyone who speaks both as bilingual because they are completely different languages. It's not like, oh, I can do a really great southern accent. No. Well, it's not like the Brits versus the Aussies. Yeah. Where we both, you know, everyone speaks English, but there are different idioms and lang- and uh, accents and stuff. That's not, it's not like right. that. Or e- I was even going to bring up, oh gosh, I don't remember the specific reference here. So sorry about that because you're not going to be able to look it up. I took a 400 level linguistics class for my degree in college. And uh, we watched this documentary about dialects versus languages. And in large part, it is kind of subjective what is a dialect and what is a language there's an island uh off the east coast of north america i can't remember if it's off the coast of canada or if it's off the coast of the united states regardless an english-speaking country and what they speak on this island they say is english i don't believe them (laughs) because they had a whole section where they were interviewing people on this island no one in our class could understand a word that they were saying we had no idea what they were saying because it was – the words had gone undergone such immense change 
that you just, you couldn't tell. They didn't sound anything alike. Hmm. But that's technically a dialect of, of English. Right. So there's a lot of variation in how different something can be to be a dialect versus, like, some languages are quite close together but are specific languages. Like, Croatian and Montenegrin are almost the same language. But Montenegrin is technically its own language. So, you know, there's a lot of political aspects that go into it as well. You know, something is called a dialect in order to enforce an idea of sameness or oneness, unity, which is exactly what they're trying to do by calling Ukrainian a dialect of Russian, Mm -hmm. is enforce this idea of unity and oneness. Brotherhood. Well, on the other hand, by declaring something its own language, you're enforcing this idea of individuality, of, you know, differentiating yourself from the others, Mm -hmm. which is... Again, exactly what they're trying to do by saying Ukrainians, its own language. So, I don't know, it's really interesting the way that it's decided. But I do think that there is more than enough difference between Ukrainian and Russian to say that they're separate languages. Because, again, you can't understand one language just because you understand the other. Right. There's also lots of false cognates with Ukrainian and Russian. So just because they share words doesn't mean that they have the same meaning. And in parts of Ukraine, there's a hybrid, kind of like Spanglish. Yeah. Where they kind of speak bits of both. Uh, they call that Sergic. I'm calling it Sergic. Yeah, makes sense. And if it's not Sergic, I apologize. We've tried to look things up. Not <clears throat> everything is uh, in Google. Yeah, well, again, there's just so much to look up. Like the Ukrainian constitution said, you know, the official language of Ukraine is Ukrainian. So bugger off, Russia. We have our own. Part of the reason that they struggle with this is because Russia banned Ukrainian language theater productions, um, public performances, their songs, books, newspaper publications, in an attempt to erase Ukrainian as a language. Which I think is hilarious because if it's not a language, why do you need to ban it? Yeah. If it's just a dialect of Russian, why do you? Yeah, because often their excuse is, oh, it's just a dialect of Russian, you know, so therefore they are Russian, except the fact that you're trying to keep them from using it because it is its own language. Yeah. So I do find that amusing because it's like your your logic doesn't track here. Sorry, guys. Doesn't track. So I think we should dive into the history From day one. From day one. (laughs) Obviously, there were Slavic tribes in the area, you know. Existing. Existing for a very long time. I mean, I was looking at at Kiev. There were artifacts found in that er area dating at least as far back as 15,000 years ago. uh, Because they dated them back to the late Paleolithic era, which... Ranges from 40,000 to 15,000 years ago, and it's somewhere in that range. So at least 15,000 years old, but possibly quite older. Dating back to the 5,000 to 3,000 BCE era, uh, there were a lot of Neolithic tribes settling in that area. And they would kind of rotate areas because uh, they would plant crops in different fields. And so they would they would move about a bit, but they were in the area of Kiev. Primarily the Trapilia culture, 
which I'm probably butchering, butchering that word as well. I did look it up earlier, but I cannot remember how it said to pronounce it. So I hope I'm getting that right. And they seem pretty cool. They made pretty pots. <laughs> well, they were pretty. They were pretty. Anyway, where our story kind of really picks up is with Kevin Roos. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> Do you want to tell any of this story at all? No, you're not interested in telling the story? I'm interested in being snarky. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, then you can be snarky, and I will tell the story. You heard, You all heard her? She gave you permission to be snarky. I did. I did. So our story really has started with Kevin Rus. This principality existed from 862 to 1242 CE. Uh, and... This is first mentioned in the Annals of St. Burton, which we really don't need to get into. Uh, but that earliest mention is actually before 862. Because so I was looking into this a lot because I was trying to figure out, pin down exactly when everything got going. Uh, and there was intrigue involved. Ooh. There was intrigue involved. Because basically, it talks about this envoy uh, that incorporated some people... Uh, that were called Russians and or Russians and had to be sent to him or had been sent to him by their king, who was named the Kagan, which is kind of vaguely relevant later, uh, for the sake of friendship, or so they claim. Dum dum. Then the emperor started looking into this a little more deeply, and he discovered that they belonged to the people of the Swedes. Damn Swedes. So he thought that they'd really been sent as spies. So this caused, you know, a problem. But uh, at any rate, that's the very first mention of them. So we've already got things going on here because the Kangan is actually the name of the leader of, like, the Turks. But then he found that they were Swedes. But also they were the Russians that came from the Slavic place. Very complicated. So they've just kind of been at it for, like, ever. Well, so there's some overlap going on here. There's some there's a reason for this. And that comes out in this story that is told in the Primary Chronicle, also known as the Tale of Bygone Years, which dates back to the 12th century. And it was written by Nestor, a monk who lived in, like, the end of the 11th century, beginning of the 12th. It Well, they, thought it, they originally thought it was written by him, but now they think that it was compiled by him from earlier works. This has a lot of mythic aspects. There's a lot of debate as to how accurate it is, but there's a lot of archaeological evidence that seems to support it. So, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like winner takes it all. Like, I mean, this, is, this story comes from Russia. It's the Russian primary chronicle. So, ultimately, R Russia came out as the greater power, or at least the larger power, the more dominant power. So they kind of get to tell the story, right? So who knows how accurate all this is, but as the story goes. Yeah, he who lives writes the history books. Exactly. So as the story goes, the sons of Noah divided up the land, and Japheth got the Kievan Rus region. And there's not really a lot on what he did with it. They just kind of say that he got it, and then they move on. And, like, uh, time passes, people fight, and they get conquered by the Turks and the Vikings, basically. They have fancy names back then, uh, but the pronunciation uh, is a pain. 
But we will talk about the Varangians, which are the Vikings. They got driven out. But again, as the story goes, the local Slavs found it difficult to govern themselves. And they found it the tributes that they were required to pay to the Turks who were still there quite expensive. Instead of dealing with, you know, having to govern themselves and pay the Turks, they just sort of went back to the Varangians in Sweden, what is now Sweden, so the Swedes, and they said, hi guys, so it was better when you were there, you want to like come back and rule us? And a family called the Rus were like, yeah, sure, that sounds cool. And so three brothers accepted, and they founded the Rurik dynasty, which lasted 900 years and ended with Ivan the Terrible. We'll get to him. <laughs> There's some debate here. Normanists accept this Norse origin and accept that the the Rurik dynasty came from what's now Sweden. But there are also anti-Normanists that argue that it was Slavic in origin and that this never happened. They didn't come from Sweden. So. Again, who knows, but most historians seem to side on the side of the Normanists because there's a lot of Scandinavian sites in the region, a lot of settlements. Like the oldest is Staria Ladoga, which is near the Volkov River, uh, which is up kind of like north near St. Petersburg. So that's the earliest known Scandinavian site. That's circa 750, so before Kievan Rus was founded, which kind of goes along with the story, actually, because they have found evidence in a lot of these sites that show that it was highly populated and then a lot less populated and then highly populated again. Which, if they kicked out the Varangians and then asked them back, makes sense. Yeah. Right? I think it's very interesting. I think it's really interesting. I think it's just, like, fascinating, these stories that came out of this. And I think... A lot of that is interesting as well. And this next part is is really interesting to me. So Rurik was the eldest of the three brothers that came to rule this area. Uh, And obviously the Rurik dynasty is named after him. He settled in Novgorod, which is 100 miles south of St. Petersburg. It's quite far from Kiev. It's solidly in what is now Russia. And that's where he settled in he became the first grand prince of what was going to become Kievan Rus. So when you think about the very first place where this was all born, Putin keeps talking about like, oh, Kiev is the mother of all Russian cities. But really, it started in Novgorod, Hmm. which is already in Russia. Yeah. So (laughs) So congrats. You already have your own people. So, hey. Leave everyone else alone. Um. It wasn't until Rurik's successor, Oleg the Prophet, captured Kiev that he moved the capital down there in 882. So Kiev was established way earlier. Uh, We already talked a little bit about the history of that area, but tradition says it was established in the year 482. And Kiev actually celebrated its 1,500th anniversary in 1982. Can you imagine no. Like, I mean, I remember when Nevada celebrated its 150th anniversary. Aren't we cute? And it was, like, such a big deal. Can you imagine 1,500? No. <laughs> it's crazy. Archaeological evidence, though, seems to support 
6th or 7th century, so a little bit after that, but still, you know. Long time. Quite, and, and quite a bit earlier than the the Rus came in and settled there and established this principality. So Kiev was already there. And then this Oleg guy just sort of was like, hey, that looks fortifiable because it's on a hill, so I'm going to just take that. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> the Primary Chronicle says that three brothers each founded a settlement on the hill, and these combined to become Kiev, named for the eldest brother. So we don't really need to go into the litany of people who came after that. Safe to say that basically there was a bunch of successions down the the Rurik dynasty line. They were all Rus people, and it was all very bloody because the law of succession was that the eldest male relative would take the throne. Not just that the eldest son was like would take the throne, the eldest male relative. So everybody was basically killing off anybody that was older than them. <laughs> just all the time. So what a great was, system. It was, I know, right? <laughs> right? What a great system. Sorry, Uncle Tom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they all kept killing each other. Or they got assassinated because the people they were ruling were upset with them. Or because they were trying to conquer something else, and while they were doing that, they got assassinated. So, you know, everybody just got killed. A lot of death. Yes, a lot of death. We did promise murder. We did promise murder. Oh, and if you want murder. So this this lady, Olga. Okay. <laughs> She's she, my idol. <laughs> this woman. Her husband, Igor, was assassinated. Mostly because he was a greedy jerk. But, you know, it's... It is what it is. She was upset because her husband got killed. She got to take over because their son was too young and Igor killed everybody else already. <laughs> so That's convenient. Yeah. Although knowing her, she'd have taken care of that if it had been a problem. <laughs> yeah. So her first order of business was revenge. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> she decided that these, uh, these people would assassinate her husband because it was a clan that did this that they were going to pay so they were like oh hey we you know killed the king so we would like to now forge a union with the principality and you know be rulers ourselves and so olga was like oh yes i totally understand uh why don't you send me some you know a delegation to discuss this with yeah like so, reasonable people. Yeah. So they, they sent a delegation to discuss this with her, and she tricked them into being buried alive. And then she was like, oh, yes, I'm so sorry, but you must understand that I had to because, you know, you killed my husband. But it's out of my system now, so uh, please, please send another delegation and we will uh, <laughs> we'll discuss this now. Oh, I've worked out all the murder in my, you know, <laughs> in my head, so we're good. We're good. So these next people that showed up, she when they arrived, she invited them to bathe in order to, you know, recoup from their journey. And she set the bathhouse on fire <laughs> and burned them alive. <laughs> and then <laughs> she laid siege to the city that the this clan, clan had holed up in, which was the same city where they murdered her husband. 
And when she couldn't get through the walls, she set the terms of their surrender. She said, I'll make it easy for you. Give me three birds from each household. And they were like, oh, well, okay, yeah, we can do that. So they sent her three birds from each household. She tied sulfur to the birds and sent them home where they promptly caught the thatch roofs on fire and burned down the entire city with everyone inside. Casual, you know. <laughs> you said you wanted murder. She actually survived, though. She didn't get murdered. Yeah. Well, yeah. You're going to take out that woman? Really? You want to risk it? What if she survives and comes after you? Uh-uh. Yeah, no, no one's risking no, that. No, she abdicated the throne in favor of her son, who conquered things and tripled the kingdom in size and then got assassinated. <laughs> I'm, I bet you that they waited until she had died before they assassinated him just to not risk it. Probably. Probably. You <laughs> can see her at 98 years old in yeah. a cane. Just... So then, if you want more blood and death, uh, his sons decided to battle Royalis, you know, for the throne. Because, again, great system we have yes. here. So one of the sons won temporarily <laughs> <laughs> because the other son, this guy Vladimir, you might have heard of him. He's known as Vladimir the Great. Hmm. He ran off to Sweden and found a cousin and was like, hi, I need an army, please. <laughs> If you got one laying around. <laughs> so he comes back with his army, kills his brother, and takes over. Oh, my God. <laughs> We're laughing. It's not funny. I mean, it's kind of funny because it was so long ago. Family feud in the first century versus now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, Vladimir the Great, he continues to expand... And everywhere that he conquers, he builds tributes to the pagan gods there, which I think is nice. I mean, if you're going to conquer people, the least you can do is give thanks to their god. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That is until the Byzantine Empire asks for aid. And the deal they work out here is that Vlad, if I may call him that, <laughs> Uh, is going to marry Basil II of the Byzantine Empire's sister, Anne. And in exchange for marrying her, he's going to convert the entire Kievan Rus to, to Christianity. And he's going to send 6,000 soldiers to the Byzantine Empire, which turns into the Varangian Guard, which stays there and guards Constantinople for, like, Years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And that's a whole other issue that we're not going to get into. It results in Kevin Rus being converted to Orthodox Christianity. Which becomes a whole issue later. Because, of course it does. Yeah, of course. Of course. You know what their couple name would be? What? Either Vlan. <laughs> or Anamir. Anamir! I like that. I like Anamir. Anamir. We're going to go with that one. Anamir. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so converting to Christianity, yes. what a no, choice. No, we don't know if that's the real story or not. I mean, I'm, I'm betting yeah. that that's the real story. I mean, that it was just this political arrangement. But uh, sometime in the 12th century, they came up with this other story because they decided that one, you know, didn't look good on the posters. Oh, right. So they came up with this other story that Vlad lost faith in the pagan beliefs. He researched Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and he selected Eastern Orthodox because of the beauty of the churches in Constantinople, and there was no prohibition on alcohol or pork. Well, that's very convenient. So, he basically just decided that one was the best one. 
I mean, if you got to convert. If you're going to convert. Which I, I do, that one smacks of propaganda to me, mm. that story. A little bit. Because it's very much the, like, oh, he really looked into all of the religions and just decided this one was the best one. Yeah. And, yeah, maybe that's what happened. Especially go from paganism to that. I know. Given the massive difference between just paganism as, as a whole and yeah. what Christian belief systems, like, delegate. Though on the subject of paganism. Mm. So I was researching differences between, like, holidays in Ukraine and Russia. And something that... I noticed that became very evident to me was that Ukraine preserved a lot more of their pagan traditions than Russia did. Cool. So Ukraine still like acknowledges the summer solstice and celebrates it in a pagan form. Um, A lot of their Christian holidays have a lot more like pagan elements to them. And in Russia, that's not really the case. Or at least there's less of it. I mean, there's definitely still some of the elements of paganism being brought into the Christianity. But, yeah, it just, it's a lot more prevalent in Ukraine, which I think is interesting. That is. Yeah. But Vlad was a pretty good ruler. He made provisions for the poor. He made himself personally available to help anyone of any social class. He founded schools, um, promoted literacy. He built cities and churches uh, trade and economy flourished under him. His son, Yaroslav the Wise, though he was originally known as Yaroslav the Lame, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? Your dad's name is Vladimir the Great, and you're Yaroslav the Lame. <laughs> and he's like, so, no, 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 that won't do. You are going to call me the Wise. Thank you very much. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Vlad obviously set it up really well. Things were flourishing, and Yaroslav the Wise progressed with that um he forged alliances through marriage both through his own marriage and the marriages of his children he had three daughters and he married them off to like france and like you know like the major players right uh he made important treaties and he brought kievan rus up to its height yeah, this was the construction of St. Sophia's Cathedral in Novgorod, which is still among the most impressive medieval cathedrals in the world. Yeah, so that was that was the high point. And then this peaceful transition to power that they, well, it was relatively peaceful, that they managed between Vlad and Yaroslav failed miserably in the next generation because although Yaroslav tried he left instructions he gave a portion of uh the principality to each of his sons and instructed them to follow the lead of the eldest son who would be the grand prince Mm -hmm. and in charge they didn't like that so they fought over power and caused Kievan Rus to fraction to a bunch of smaller states which were further destabilized by the crusades particularly when the crusades caused the Byzantine Empire to collapse because that was their primary connection with the trade routes. <laughs> so they were like, oh, well, we're kind of, we can't trade now. That's a problem. A little bit. A little bit. And at that point, Andrew of Suzdal, which, so Suzdal is this principality that was east of Moscow. He is one of the cousins of the Rus. He's descended from Rurik as well, another member of the Rurik dynasty. And there's all this fighting, right, trying to figure out who's in charge of Kiev. And he sacks Kiev in order to become the Grand Prince, but decides that he likes the town of Vladimir better 
And so he goes back there and makes it the capital. <laughs> and that's something I found funny as well, is that through a lot of this, the capital of Kiev and Rus kept moving. Because the princes, whoever was in charge at the time, would just be like, well, I like my city that I was already living in, so we're just going to make that the capital. Okay, guys? <laughs> so while Kiev technically was primary capital of Kiev and Rus, that's not where the seat of power was through the majority of this there's all this pointing at Kiev as the mother of all Russian cities because it's like, yep, the, they moved all over the place. Even back then, they were like, it's, I mean, Kiev's cool and all, but hear me out. I'm going to go over to this city or that city or the other one. And most of these cities are in Russia right now. I said I was going to try to be impartial. I'm not doing very good at that. You're stating facts. I am stating facts. I just think it's funny. Obviously, Kevin Roos is very destabilized at this point. That's when the Mongols come in. Bum, bum, bum. And they're like, hi, we just want to destroy everything. I mean, I'm sure their motivations are much deeper than that. But I wasn't researching the Mongols for this. I was researching Kiev and Moscow and all of that. One fun thing to note is they were called the Golden Horde, which that's just a cool name. Yeah, it was a cool name. So the Mongols come in and they just attack and stuff. And they're like, oh, hey, uh, Rurik Dynasty, you guys can, like, stay in charge as long as you pay tribute to us. Uh, but before we get too much further into that, I'm going to backtrack. Uh-huh. Well, because like I said, I wanted to do talk about everybody. Not lean too far to one side or the other. We were talking about a lot about Kiev and Kiev and Rus, which does incorporate a lot of Russia. However, let's talk about Moscow. Yeah. So Moscow has also existed since Neolithic times, just like Kiev. Uh, but the first documented reference isn't until 1147. When the Prince of Suzdal, which we've mentioned previously was host at a great banquet for his ally, the Prince of Novgorod Sversky in Moscow. So we know that Moscow was at least established enough to be the seat of a prince uh, by that time, 1147. So we don't know exactly when it was established as a principality, but at any rate. Uh, and we do know that there are remains of roads and there's like iron and leather work that's been discovered in archaeological digs uh, from the 11th century. Cool. So 10. As it was growing to prominence, that's when the Mongols invaded. So the two primary cities in that area were Vladimir and Suzdal. And then Moscow was kind of coming up. It was like, hey, hey, I'm here too. And then the Mongols came. Uh, yeah, the Mongol invasion, they sacked, burned, and massacred all the cities we've spoken of so far, except for Novgorod. They were coming up on Novgorod and were, like, almost there when, well, I've seen different reasons. One, art, one article I was reading just said spring came and they turned around. <laughs> Another one I read. Because that's when you want to leave Russia. Spring. <laughs> Another one I was reading said that uh, a commander was killed, which destabilized the hierarchy. So they went back to, you know, sort that out, which that makes more sense to me than yeah. spring came. I read that and I was like, which means that they would have been doing all this in the middle of winter. I know I don't. Which I, don't. I mean, I believe, but like that's the time they leave when things get easier. They are the Mongols. Yeah. 
At any rate, as I said, the princes of the Rurik dynasty were forced to seek a patent from the Mongols that basically allowed them to rule. And the fractured houses, they fought over this right because apparently they were only letting so many people rule. Which, you know, I mean, you don't want too many princes in your Mm -hmm. bonnet, basket, whatever. (laughs) Be in your bonnet, Potter. (laughs) So as they fight for this, two dominant houses emerge. Tver and Moscovy. Well done on your pronunciation. Thank you. I'm trying really hard. That's why that was the clap. Moscovy eventually won out. So at this point, everything else has kind of been just demolished. And Moscovy rises to power and is like, hi, I'm awesome. So I don't really know why they don't, they're not happy with Moscow because I think Moscow's kind of cool. It, it it survived where nothing else did. Yeah. Why wouldn't I would be happy with Moscow, but whatever. It's that's my opinion. Well, not when you fact. take over Russia, then you can be happy with, happy with <laughs> Moscow. Okay. Sounds good. Kiev was greatly weakened. I like to the point where six years after the fact, um, a famous writer and orator was traveling through. And reported that only six houses were still standing. And this was a city that had tens of thousands of people in it beforehand. Wow. So, like, it was wrecked. So, naturally, it's, like, super weakened. And it falls under the rule of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. And that lasts for a while. And eventually, they're given a charter of autonomy in 1516. Which sparks more trade and growth. Well, because part of it is the fact that, like, Lithuania came in and defeated the Mongols. So, like, that started some of the issues between Lithuania and that area of the Mongol Empire. Mm. So when Ivan III came up and wanted to separate from Golden Horde, he refused to pay tribute and establish his own independence. While also trying to um, lay claim to parts of present-day Ukraine, who was the first Russian leader to do that. Which continued the conflict between him and Lithuania. Yes. At that point, you know, we're starting to have some of this, like, fighting over the Ukraine area. Because up to this point, they've kind of just been fighting over themselves. Yeah. You know. Uh, But then, you know, the Mongols come in, divide everything. Uh, Part of it goes to Lithuania. Part of it remains under control of the Mongols. And then you... Until Ivan III. Yes. Cuts out his own little chunk. Yes. And then he claims parts of a part of Ukraine, which is the kind of the first time that we're starting to see this. Hey, this is mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Yeah. Which, honestly, some of it feels like toddlers fighting over a toy. But so in 1569, Poland and Lithuania finally unite uh, in part because Russia has been getting kind of powerful and doing stuff. And by the late 1400s, Moscow had become the center of a unified Russian state. So they're effectively independent. They are starting to become more powerful. And Poland and Lithuania are like, that's frightening. So they merge. There's continued growth in Moscow, but fires in 1547 damage much of the city. And that's the same year that Ivan IV became the first czar of Russia. Uh-huh. And Ivan IV... Is also known as? Known as Ivan the Terrible. Yes! Uh, So this fellow, he marries Anastasia Romanova. Name sound familiar? No. Man, I feel like I watched a movie about that recently. 
Not that Anastasia, <laughs> but her ancestor. Yeah, obviously. Anastasia Romanova was the great aunt of the first czar of the Romanov dynasty, which obviously she didn't know at the time. No one knew that was going to happen. But, you know, it creates an interesting tie between the Rurik dynasty and the Romanov dynasty. Ivan the Terrible actually wasn't that terrible at first. He encouraged cultural development through printing, created a more centralized government, weakened the aristocracy, and created more merit-based positions, which honestly was in part to just solidify his own power because he's increasing the debt that, like, people in power owe to the Tsar because their power no longer comes by birthright. It comes by the will of the Tsar. Mm -hmm. So... It's kind of selfish, but at the same time, it creates more opportunities for people. And it means that all of these princes that have been squabbling and killing each other and stuff are no longer quite as powerful and squabbling as much and killing each other. So it's, you know, good. Progress. Progress good. is progress. Progress. But then he gets into this thing called the Livonian War, which I'm not going to get into. <laughs> but it goes very poorly. And it weakens the state drastically. And he finds out that there's spies and people have betrayed him. And he loses it a little bit. He tries um, to step down. They won't let him. So then he really loses it and secludes himself and cuts himself off from everybody. But then he also, like, goes out on these little, like, reigns of terror where he just sort of kills people <laughs> in his own in his own territory. Hey, I don't want to be king anymore. Too bad. <laughs> Great. Sweet. What am I going to do in my spare time? Murder. So, and I'm, I mean, I'm drastically, like... Simplifying. Simplifying all of that. There's a lot more going on there. I mean, there have been entire books written about Ivan the Terrible. So if you like that sort of thing, go read one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just find that funny. Hey, guys, I don't want to be king anymore. Too bad. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have the Time of Troubles... Because after Ivan the Fourth, the whole line succession thing is a bit of a mess, and there was one more true member of the Rurik dynasty after that, and then there was a guy. There was a guy. There was like, "Hi, I'm Ivan the Terrible's son," and everybody was like, "I thought he died." And this guy was like, "No, no, no, no he didn't die. I'm Ivan the Terrible's son." It's and fine. never knew he had a son. <laughs> he doesn't talk about me much. <laughs> And anyway, so he becomes Tsar for a very, very short period of time before finally people are like, no, you're a fraud. He, like, that son that you're pretending to be did actually die. So this guy's known as the false Dimitri because <laughs> he wasn't actually Dimitri. He was a fake Dimitri. <laughs> shows you that confidence can get you through a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, they, you know, he got killed because... <laughs> <laughs> risk you take when you're going to pretend to be a czar. Yeah. Anyway, he gets sacked. and Sacked six feet under. And there's chaos and bad things happen. And then finally the Romanovs are like, okay, guys. <laughs> we're just going to step in here. And if you thought that the Romanovs were going to put an end to the blood and death and stuff, no, you would be wrong. Yeah. No. You would be wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, the number of Romanov Tsars that they went through in between 1613 and 1917, 300 years, is ridiculous. <laughs> it's 
<laughs> they're like, this person killed that person. This person died early. There was one instance where the Tsar died and his son was quite young. The next Tsar, actually, I think it was a woman that took over. Yes, it was a woman that took over. Actually, I think it was Catherine the Great that took over. Hmm. She was like, ah, he's unfit and threw this child into jail and took over. And then, motherly instincts. when this child tried to escape jail several years later, when he was like eight years old, they were like, ah, now you've committed treason, and they killed him. It, I'm I'm laughing, but it's not funny. It's not That's funny. horrible. Just, oh, my like, God. It's really bad. Catherine the Great, what the hell? I mean, she was a gr- she was genuinely a great leader aside from that. I mean, you know, if you look yeah, at all the other stuff the she child did, murder. Yeah, it's, I, the, look up the succession of the Romanovs, because it's, Bonkers. It's bonkers. Anyway, Romanov's coming to power. And then we have the Cossack Uprising, which happens between 1648 to the 1654-57 range. Basically, they rebelled against the Polish-Lithuanian rule, attempting to establish independence. They kind of achieved it. They managed to make a semi-autonomous state known as the Hetmanate. So this was like the first kind of independent Ukrainian state before Ukraine existed, but, you know, the area that Ukraine was. But this also triggered the ruin, which basically is when the Cossacks look to Russia for protection. But what actually happens is they get fought over by the Russians, the Polish, the Ottoman Empire, and their own armies, you know, are battling out as well for control. And it's just awful murder, chaos, warfare for 10 years-ish. Something like that. Something like that. Interesting is the fact that the Cossack Rebellion, like, started because they didn't want to be a part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth anymore. Mm -hmm. And their best bet was to ask you know, after fighting and realizing that they probably couldn't do this on their own, they asked for Russia for help, which just led to more fighting mm. and division and battles and death. It just spiraled out of control. But, I mean, that's why they called it the ruin. Okay, so, and this chaos continued until 1686, when Russia and Poland-Lithuania got together without consulting the Cossacks and signed a truce dividing... What's now Ukraine between them, with the Dnieper River as the boundary. Probably mispronouncing that, too. Uh, So, eastern Ukraine went to Russia. Western Ukraine obviously went to Poland, Lithuania. And that's when we were talking about earlier about the Polish influence in the language. That's when a lot of that happened. I mean, obviously, they were part of Poland earlier, too, so there was that influence as well, but... Actually, it's kind of surprising how much of this history Ukraine is not part of Russia. Yeah. By 1795, most of modern-day Ukraine has been conquered and annexed by Russia. I'm going to skip over a lot. There's a lot of back and forth, and they conquered this, and they conquered that. There's a Great Northern War. Um, the King Charles VII of Sweden does stuff, and, I, like, there's just things happen. <laughs> Lots of things happen. But the end result is... By 1795, most of modern-day Ukraine has been conquered or annexed by Russia. We're skipping to that. Though I do I do think that that's important. Catherine the Great annexed Crimea. You know, kind of against Crimean will. <laughs> Which happens a lot to Crimea. Yeah. 
But I think that that's important because, I don't know, Putin said this thing about how part of Ukraine was a gift from Russia, and he's talking about Crimea because Stalin gives Crimea to Ukraine as a thing that he just decided to do for some reason. And I think it's hilarious because they stole it from Ukraine in the first place. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would love to be neutral, but they could make it a little easier. <laughs> we've got Napoleon attempting to invade Russia and he goes through Ukraine to do that and um, we all know how well that worked out for him so well (laughs) so well (laughs) did a great job in 1918 Ukraine declares independence then there's the civil war because they tried to form independence which causes chaos and at the end of it The eastern two-thirds are back with Russia, and the western third once again becomes part of Poland. (laughs) They just cannot get out of this tug-of-war between Poland and Russia. They've been trying for centuries. No one will let them be. No one will let them be. So then 1932 is the Holodomor, which is the Ukrainian name for uh, this engineered famine. Oh, yeah, I was reading about that. Do tell. I think you read more about it than I do, so this is all on you. As if they hadn't been through enough, Stalin purposely engineers a famine that results in the death of 3.9 Ukrainians. Just because. Yeah. Why not? Something that's really interesting about this, I was looking at this. Like, I really uh, don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I really don't see, like, a direct reason behind it, except, except. To get Ukraine under control, but why kill nearly four million people for that? Don't you kind of need people in your, you know, country to call it your country? Yeah. Anyway, you do, you do for sure. Yeah. I was reading a, it wasn't exactly a study. It was kind of a survey where they talked to two thousand Ukrainians and two thousand Russians and asked them about their perspectives on certain issues to try to show that. One of the major differences between Ukrainians and Russians is the way that they perceive their their history. Because so much of this history is shared. They, they have a lot in common. But they tell their stories very differently and they understand their stories very differently. And that creates a very different sense of that history. So one of the questions was, was the Holodomor, the famine... Was it a deliberately engineered act against Ukrainians or was it a natural disaster that primarily affected Ukrainians or was it a natural disaster that affected all Soviets or like it's those all these different things. And it's very interesting because Ukrainians very clearly are like, nope, no, that was definitely an attack (laughs) against us. And meanwhile, Russians primarily will say it was either a natural disaster that primarily affected Ukrainians or as a natural disaster that affected all Soviets equally, Hmm. which is interesting. Which an argument might be able to be made for it being a, you know, natural occurrence, except a couple years later, 1936 to 38 was known as the Great Purge Hmm. in which Stalin goes throughout the Soviet Union and in Ukraine and executing or shipping out people to the gulags, um, anyone who he deemed was an enemy. So, like, getting people under control and murder, yeah. which is kind of what this man did. Yeah. 
So I have a hard time thinking that just kind of I mean, this not, massive famine just kind of happened upon them. And the majority of experts definitely come down on the line of it was deliberate. Most experts will say that it was you know, premeditated and an act of genocide. So, and as if that weren't enough, you know what came next after <clears throat> Stalin's baloney? The Nazis. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which, um, actually, before we, because there's, a, I know there's a gap in yours and my notes. Oh. Uh, 1939, the Nazi-Soviet pact, which is just a great party that you always want to be invited to. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> no, it sounds like a hoot. Just throws Western Ukraine back with Russia. So, Western yeah. Ukraine is like, and now we're Russian again, I guess. Because, I, again, with the tug of war. So, more than 5 million Ukrainians die fighting Nazi Germany. And then most of Ukraine's 1.5 million Jews are killed by the Nazis. So how many millions of people have been killed in Ukraine in the first half of the century? Just how many millions have died in the last 10 years? How many millions of people have died since the Holodomor um, to the Nazis? Yeah. So that's, you know, 3.9 million. So we'll round up to 4 million in the Holodomor. And then there's not even a number for the executing them outright or shipping them to gulag labor camps. We'll just add that. We'll just make that part of the four million. We'll just. I feel like that's a very probably a lot more modest, modest number. <laughs> then five million die fighting Nazi Germany, and one point five million are killed by the Nazis. So we're at a solid eleven million. Probably. I'm going to say it was a solid 11 million Ukrainians yeah. just got murdered in this 10-year period, which is, you know, really bad. Horrific. I, I was wrong earlier. It was not Stalin. Um, 1954, Khrushchev gives Crimea to Ukraine. Mm. So I think I said it was Stalin earlier. I was wrong. Forgive me. I was ahead of myself in my notes. Yeah, which, again, I think is hilarious that we're like oh we're just gonna give this also they're still part of you <laughs> ukraine is still part of russia at this point but khrushchev is like oh you can have that which if you're gonna say that ukraine has always been a part of russia then why are you gifting and stealing crimea back and forth <laughs> yeah. yeah poor crimea <laughs> because the other thing in 1944 um 2000 crimean tatars were deported Due to false accusations of working with the Nazis. They were, like, deported to Siberia and Eastern Asia. Right. In 1991, upon the dissolution of USSR, and remember, Khrushchev gave Crimea to Ukraine, so Ukraine is like, hi, that's ours. All the Crimean Tartars and their descendants come back. 250,000 of them. And what happens 20 years later? They get stolen again. <laughs> like... Oh, my God. You have to laugh because it's just, it's so, well, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. This is, this is absolutely insane. Is there a certain point where we can't just say, you know what, like, just do what you will, man. Have a nice life. I'm sorry. Russia is far too stubborn for that. Yeah. So, in 2004, we had the Orange Revolution. Well, now, now, we don't forget about the um, dissolution of the USSR in 91. Oh, okay. I didn't mean to. I guess I kind of skipped over that, huh? That's kind of an important part. Yeah. Because I think I kind of mentioned it in passing. But you mentioned the Crimeans coming back. but the, Right. Because like the, of the dissolution of USSR. Yeah. But, yeah. So, 1991, the USR, USSR falls apart. And Ukraine is like, hi, we're really independent this time. <laughs> Now's our chance. Now's our chance. 
because they tried it. They tried it in 1918, and they tried it in 1648. They've tried it a handful times over the last couple centuries, <laughs> and this time they're like, yes, finally, woo, finally. <laughs> yeah. So 1991, they're they're deciding to be independent again. It takes a couple years for things to kind of get going. I think in 1996, they approved their constitution. Then in 2004, we have the Orange Revolution. I hate these names because we had Viktor Yushchenko, mm-hmm. and then we had Viktor Yanukovych. Yeah, keep those straight. Yushchenko and Yanukovych. And Yushchenko is the opposition leader, also known as the non-corrupt guy. And Yanukovych is the pro-Russian candidate that got elected in a rigged election. Yeah, that was in 2004, which led to the Orange Revolution because they realized it was a rigged election and they were not having it. Yeah. So the opposition leader, Yushchenko, he leads this this protest and eventually their Supreme Court annulled the poll result or made it go away and was like, sorry, Yanukovych, you cheated. So you don't get to be president. Naughty, naughty. Naughty, naughty. So then Yushchenko becomes president. His basically prime minister, person in charge of the legislative body, is Yulia Timoshenko. A woman. How very progressive. I know. They literally just became an independent nation and they already had a woman in charge. Like, come on. Gotta love it. The relations with Russia sour, much to the approval of the Ukrainian people. (laughs) But this causes problems with gas supplies. You know, Russia starts charging big time because they're Russia and they don't like being told no. Yeah. The global financial crisis eventually leads to decline in demand for steel. And since steel is one of Ukraine's main exports, that caused a big problem and Ukraine kind of crashed, which is not a good thing to do 15 years after you became a country. Yeah. Not ideal. Not a, yeah, not what you want. Then we have another election. And this time Yanukovych, remember that cheating liar guy? The pro-Russian liar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wins again. This time supposedly legit. They said that they did an investigation to make sure this one was true because they didn't trust him from last time. Right. And this time he really was elected. Which I do... I, I kind of believe that. I do. Because, you know, the they elected the other victor, and things did not go well. So why not try the other victor? Yeah. I get it. I get it. Except that it didn't go well. Did not work out well. It did not work mm-hmm. out well. For anyone. Uh, because promptly after getting elected, this guy jails that lovely female legislative leader that we were talking about. Uh, for abuse of power over a gas deal with Russia in 2009. Uh, and this would later get overturned because, guess what? She didn't. <laughs> <laughs> this is just an excuse to throw your political opposition in jail. That happened. And at this point, Ukraine's really pushing to join EU fair trade mm-hmm. um, and be in an agreement with them. And their president's like, yeah, we will do that. That was what he ran on with the election. He boasted about that for years until the time came to, and he said, nah, I'm actually going to sign something and get um, stronger relations with Russia. That's not what the people wanted, that's for sure. That's not what the people wanted. And that led to the 2014. 
teen revolution. Yes. The people were like, that is not what we elected you to do. You promised us that we would get closer with the EU. You promised us a path to the EU. So... And the EU was like, ready to go. Papers, all you gotta do is sign. And he's like, "Mm, absolutely not. No. We're gonna sign with Russia. Which we just watched a very interesting documentary. It's a great documentary um, called Winter on Fire. It's a 2015 documentary about the Maidan Revolution. It... It's quite good. Uh, We highly recommend it. I will put information for it in the show notes, but also you can just look it up on Netflix. Yeah. That's what we did. (laughs) It was great. It was great. We Um, enjoyed it. Death. Just be warned. It, it, you know, oh, yeah, there's there's very blatant death. Do not show this to children. No, not, Under no, no circumstances should mm-hmm. you show this to children. Yeah, there's no censoring mm-hmm. of anything. And they're the people filming this documentary where they're on the ground yeah. during this revolution. Yeah, there's no but, reenactment, no oh, hidden camera angles to like, imply what happened. No, no, no. These are, this is actual footage. Of people being murdered. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but let's get into, you know, exactly why, because otherwise it sounds really, really scary. Because it didn't start out scary. No. It started it's a out... a beautiful story. It started out Aww. with students posting on Facebook saying, hey, we elected this guy to get us in the EU, and he didn't. Let's go peacefully protest. So they go to the Maidan Square in Kiev, which is also known as Independence Square. Which I would like to point out that it's important to note that that's what happened in the Orange Revolution. They did a peaceful protest, and it worked. So to them, they have a history of peaceful protests get results. This is 10 years after the the Orange Revolution. Right. So, yeah, they, they know, oh, we can peacefully protest and... The government will respond. Yeah. Which is great. You love it when Fantastic. a government responds to a peaceful protest. In a good way. They Because they responded to this. The students go out and they just hang out in this square with their signs and they chant things and they just stand there. They don't really do anything. But after a few days, the police come out and they surround the square and they push in to corner all of these people onto, like, the statue in the center and the steps. And then they just start beating them. And not with plastic batons, but with iron batons. Yeah. So these people are bleeding and, you know, there's bruises, broken bones, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and you would think that this might scare people off. But instead, more people turned out. And remember, because it's in 2014, they had video coverage of all of this. And mm-hmm. so it got posted and people were infuriated that these students peacefully protested and they were met with aggressive beatings. People yeah. end up in the hospital from these. Yeah. And again, they cornered them. I mean, they surrounded them. They pushed them all into the center and then they started beating on them. Kicking them, shoving them. Yeah. yeah it was with metal. Yeah. Horrible. Like, it's horrible. And again, these are kids. You know, they're like 18, 19. They're kids. Tons and tons of people turned out. I can't remember the exact number from the documentary. Tens of thousands of people just filled the streets. I distinctly remember at one point they said that I think 1.5 million people showed up. Something like that, yeah. I mean, it was an insane number of people uh, show up to this thing. And uh, so it 
it progresses and they keep protesting. They keep trying. Uh, they keep getting beaten by the aggressively. police. Aggressively. Aggressively. At one point, they bring all of the, the injured people back to a, a building that they'd converted into a hospital and yeah, were kind of using as their headquarters. Hospital. And the police set it on fire. Yeah. And 30 people died in that blaze. Um, th- that was that was later on because yeah. at first it was um, they were continuing with the beatings and stuff. I think the pro set testers decided to try to march to the Capitol to stand outside the the Parliament building, and um, they were interrupted on their way. And the police came after them and were beating them. The, there came a point when they initiate, you know, like they initiated using the rubber bullets and stuff, yes. and not just the beatings. Yeah. And then there was another point when they later traded in the rubber bullets for real ones. Yeah. And I think that that's when the first two people died, when they Which, traded in the, for the real bullets. Yeah. At that point, the people there are like, you you have now decided to kill us for peacefully protesting, and we can't give up now. No. Because our friends have now given their lives for this, and we are not going to give up. We're not going to let that be in vain. So they stay. And they build barricades. Um, Former military and police come and join their ranks to help teach them how to build the barricades, how to resist the attacks, what happens if you, you know, are beaten, how yeah. to get around things. Formations. And they go they go through, like, this rebellion training yeah. from all these former military and police officers. Yeah. And they continue to remain peaceful for all of this. Yeah. Like, they, they start wearing helmets and they get shields and stuff, but, like, and they, they pick up some baseball bats, but they don't arm themselves. Right. They don't arm themselves. So this continues to escalate. We talked about the fire. Security forces in February kill at least 77 protesters. There's a point where it just gets, it gets really, really brutal. Uh, The final death toll was 103 protesters and 13 police. And over 750 suffered some sort of injury. Yeah. And it just, it kept escalating. It was horrible. Some sort of severe injury. Yeah. To the point where the 103 protesters had died yeah, been been mur- shot and murdered. They were picking him off with snipers. Yeah, yeah, like it, horrible, absolutely horrible. Running them over with tanks, really bad. And eventually, like they're like um, some spokesman came forward from the government and said, "Here's the deal. Here's what we've agreed to." And some post and the protesters are like, "That is not good yeah. enough." Well, because the agreement was, "Oh, well, we're gonna let you go home in peace," and they were like. Um, hi, we know lots of people that were trying to go home last night and got kidnapped out of their cars and we don't know where they are. Yeah. There's no guarantee if we just leave here now that we're going to be safe. And so one of the protesters goes up on the stage and starts saying, no, the only thing we will accept is if this president steps down by tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And if not, then we... Or else we will arm ourselves and we will come for blood. Like, we have been... Utterly peaceful up to till this point. But at this point, you've killed 103 of us. You've kidnapped people. You've beaten people to a pulp. You've burned down our buildings. You've destroyed any trust we could ever have in this government. We've had it. And if we were to turn back now and go home... We wouldn't be safe. Well, our, that and how could we say we did anything? Our friends died for this cause. We mm-hmm. cannot turn back now. Yeah. So they, they said, you have the president has until 10 a.m. tomorrow morning to resign or 
we will arm ourselves and this will become a full hours revolution. <laughs> so the next morning, the president is spotted fleeing the country. It like the cover of darkness. Yeah, in the middle of the night. He's just like, uh, you know, you know what? I gotta go. And um, he goes, he goes to cry to Mother Russia. <laughs> he goes crying to Mother Russia. Yeah. The parliament has a vote at 10 a.m. To formally remove him from power. No surprise, it passes. What was it, 380 to zero or something like that? Mm-hmm. With, I think, 100 abstaining. Abstaining. Th- that happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the Ukrainian people are not... They're not messing around. They're not messing around. And they, they are not strangers to standing up for their freedom and standing up for their rights well, and their I, independence. It's worth noting that this rebellion took place from the end of November until f- middle of February... In Ukraine. Yeah. So it was it's dead of winter when they are standing out there in protests. So Bitter it's cold. cold. And so everyone's coming together. The entire country's coming together, donating clothes, food, medicine to help the protesters make it through this winter mm-hmm. while they're standing outside the whole time. Yeah. Unfortunately, this, while they win... They also succeed in destabilizing their own government, yeah. which Russia takes advantage of. Uh, it forces its way into Crimea and re-annexes it. Although at least the Ukrainians, like, they were able to sign into the free trade agreement with the EU. So they got a step closer. They got a step They closer. got what they wanted. So they were very happy with that. Yeah. Then that same year, Russia starts to seize parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions the Ukrainian military uh, launches an operation in, in response, but it wasn't, you know, it didn't make much progress. But they do, at this point, they realize that Russia is coming for them. So they start training, and that's part of why they've been so successful now, is because they have been t- preparing for war since 2014. I'm sure most of us remember when... Uh, pro-Russian forces shot down Malaysian airliner over eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 people on board. I remember when that happened. Yeah. It's a big, big deal in the news. Yeah. Yeah, those things kind of escalate. As they want to do. As they want to do, and ultimately lead up to where we're at today. Zelensky got elected in 2019. That's the other big thing big thing that happened which while we were looking for the <laughs> documentary <laughs> we came across a tv show that he started yeah that was basically making f- like fun of and like it was a comedy about ukrainian politics yeah satirical comedy <laughs> yeah so in which he played the president <laughs> he, yeah fantastic. he played a teacher that got elected president because of an online rant or something yeah <laughs> So. And, like, I already knew that he'd been an actor and, like, mm-hmm. that, like, he was... But I didn't know that that was what he started. <laughs> ironic. Yeah. <laughs> and then the party that he ran under when he actually ran for president, he named after that TV show. Yeah. Sermon <laughs> of the People. For an actor that got thrust into the war and stuff, like, he's done pretty good. He's done a think, great job. He's considered. Yeah. So uh, that brings us to present day. As far as the religion goes... So Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox aren't actually that different. Part of that is a bit of a power play because Russian Orthodox Church basically, I mean, they kind of stage a passive coup against the Constantinople original Orthodox Church because when Constantinople was was taken over, 
Uh, it obviously destabilized that whole area, and the church lost a lot of power, and Moscow was over there like, hi, we have lots of power. We're just going to declare ourselves the center of the Orthodox Church now, okay? <laughs> okay. And Constantinople Orthodox and Russian Orthodox ultimately had a falling out over that. So when Ukrainian Orthodox wanted to separate from Russian Orthodox, they asked to be recognized by Constantinople, which originally was like, and even to this day, it's kind of like the Pope, basically, except of Orthodox Church instead of Catholic Church. And Constantinople was like, oh, yeah, that's going to make them mad. <laughs> that's going to make Russia mad. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can be your own church underneath our church. <laughs> we approve. We approve. So part of that is just like the political aspect of Russia versus Constantinople. But there are subtle differences between the way that it's practiced. So there is that. And far more nuanced than either of us know anything about. Yeah. Well, particularly since neither of us know anything about Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, period. <laughs> Except that we now know that Christmas is January 7th. Yeah, we got to find that out personally. Yes. And the other big thing is that there's a there's a significant Catholic population in Ukraine as well. That's the other big religious difference. Though Something I thought was interesting was that neither Russia nor Ukraine typically actively practices religion. Like, nobody goes to church on Sundays. Hmm. And the reason for that is because um, the USSR, they declared atheism as, like, the official religion of the USSR. The official religion is you have none. <laughs> yeah. And so... For basically, like, 70 years, all of the people in the USSR, like, couldn't practice their religion in public. So nobody goes to church because they got used to not going to church. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot more people that believe in Christianity than, like, actually practice it in either country. So I feel like it's kind of a moot point because if you're not practicing it in public, then... You know, it does it really matter what you do in your own house? Some people would say yes, but I say no. Well, as long as it's not hurting anybody else, I don't yeah. really care. Oh, update uh, from our episode six story about our crazy Airbnb experience. Take it away, Nicole. When we left off, you know, we were trying to contact Airbnb customer service, trying to fight, you know, all the decisions that they had made without our knowledge. I finally got through to a person, at least I think it was. It wasn't the same robotic t um, messages back. And they've decided to uphold the host's request, keep the mark on the account, and keep the review down. I don't think there's anything more I can do on that front. I've tried every avenue and... They don't seem to care. They don't seem to care, which just blows my mind. What's crazy is that they referenced her her review of us. Did we ever see a review? No, I never her? got to see a review. I might request it just to see, just to know what she said about us, because she got yeah. to see what we said about her. Yeah. So I might request that. Well, I, I was thinking too that like I I would respond and be like, okay, I respect your decision. I would like to know why though, so that I can do better in the future. Yeah. Like, please inform me as to what your logic was here. Right. So that I can understand and I can learn from it. Yeah. Like, I I would do that because, I well, I think they're wrong and I had no intention of learning from it. I want to know what their 
thinking. Yeah. What? Yeah. What's the theory <laughs> behind this? Because I really, I genuinely do not believe that we did anything wrong at any point. I don't understand how a person could look at all the evidence we sent in and still say that the host is in the right. Yeah. <laughs> and I get the host is like their is Airbnb's customer and they're you know the host who brings in the money. Is their primary so, concern? Yeah, yeah, that's their primary concern. All right, neighbors. Thanks for joining us today. If you heard something you liked, please support the show by hitting the subscribe button and reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find takeaways from today's show on in the show notes, and you can find more information about the podcast and show notes for each episode on carsoncosta.com forward slash podcast. Please send us your questions, comments, and suggestions. You can email us at nto at carsoncosta.com or find us on Facebook at NTO pod. We would love to hear from you. We'll be back next week to keep making your world a little smaller.